Welcome to Posterity Podcast, a discussion of unusual subjects that touch the lives of everyday people from a Christian worldview. This is Mike Carmen sitting alongside Jay Carmen, coming to you from cul-de-sacs in two mysteriously undisclosed locations in Ohio and Tennessee via the internet. So sit back, relax, and try not to fall asleep. How you doing, Jay? I'm good. It is a pleasant evening here in the... Uh... It's a pleasant evening in the neighborhood here in Southwest Ohio. Yay. Yeah. Is it raining where you're at? Uh, not today. We did get rain off and on all weekend, less yesterday than Saturday. So everything is very green, starting to dry out. It means I'll probably be cutting grass tomorrow or Wednesday early, something like that. Get it kind of, it's too wet to, it was really kind of too wet to cut it over the weekend, especially in the early evening, so. So yeah, no rain today, just very pleasant. Very, very humid today. Very humid. Yeah, yeah we had a little bit of rain, but uh, it's needed, so it's all good. Well, welcome back everyone to part two of the Majestic Documents. In this podcast episode, we wanna talk about an overview of five primary Majestic Documents and then discuss some problems with what we call authorship attribution. But before we do that, let's do an overview of the five primary majestic documents. Here we go. While there are in fact thousands of majestic documents, here are five of the most popular. Coming in at number one is the Aquarius teletype. Its classification is secret. It was acquired by William Moore in March of 1981 and concerns the interpretation of photographic imagery provided by Paul Benowitz. The document is believed to have been provided by the Air Force Office of Special Investigation Agent Richard Doty. And we have heard his name before. As, yep. Yeah, as we have heard the name of Paul Benowitz. The document concludes the analysis of Paul Benowitz's three film negatives and 34 inches of 8mm film was unaltered and the identify the identity, excuse me, of the image images was inconclusive. You know, I can write this stuff, but it's really hard to read. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, an additional negative was set to be unaltered, and it contained a saucer-shaped craft, some thirty-seven feet in diameter, with a trilateral insignia. Boy, I would love to see that. It's bigger than my house. <laughs> That's right. I'd, I'd like to live in that actually, perhaps. <laughs> That's right. As long as it stays on the ground. <laughs> what if we could put that in the backyard? That's right. <laughs> well, the negative was believed to be unaltered and of an unidentified aerial object. Sounds pretty cool. Well, the results of Project Aquarius are still classified with restricted access to MJ 12. Lastly, the curious case of Paul Benowitz was being monitored by NASA and all the info was forwarded through the Office of Air Force Special Investigations. And these are the things that that, that, that particular document tells us, correct? The Aquarius yeah. teletype. Yeah. Yes, the Aquarius teletype, yeah. Well, coming in at number two, the Aquarius executive briefing teletype. This document's security classification is top secret and was also acquired by William Moore in March of 1981. Unfortunately, though, only the cover page is available at www. 
I guess I don't really need to say that in this day and age. But anyway, MajesticDocuments.com, which says that the 11-page document is the product of Bill Morse photography in some shady, obscure East Coast hotel room, according to his own testimony. MajesticDocuments.com says the content is fascinating and that the ETs have come from the Zeta Reticuli star system. And I have no idea where that's at. It's in space. <laughs> it it's is in space. Yeah, yes. Yeah. I know it's not in Indiana. <laughs> Good say. Or where I'm at. That's it's right. It's in space. It's in space. Okay, so of these many, as Mike has said, thousands of majestic documents that we're documenting the top five. Number three is the Eisenhower briefing document. This document, this document's security classification is top secret, majestic, and eyes only. And it was acquired by Jamie Chandere on a roll of film that was sent to his house in December of 1984. When he developed the film, here's what he found. It is a briefing document from Admiral Roscoe Hillencotter to President-elect Dwight D. Eisenhower regarding an operation called Operation Majestic 12, and it's dated November 18, 1952. The document states that the Majestic 12 group was formed per the special classified executive order of then-President Truman on September 24, 1947, and that it was upon the recommendation of Dr. Vannevar Bush and the Secretary of State, James Forrestal. The document discusses the following. First, the Kenneth, Arl, the Kenneth Arnold sighting, which was a famous UFO sighting of June 24, 1947. This really kicked off the age of the UFO, the unidentified flying object, yes, because of the yeah, because of the newspaper coverage that that Arnold got, and the not just newspaper but uh, television coverage. The document also discusses second, the July 7, 1947 recovery of a crashed disc, and four small, dead, human-like beings, referred to in the document as extraterrestrial biological entities, or EBEs. Uh, and that was the title that a Dr. Bronk gave to them, whom we've discussed before. Third, it discusses that Dr. Howard Menzel believed this craft to be a short-range craft not from Mars, but from outside our solar system. The craft was not of any known design, and it had no recognizable parts or propulsion. Fourthly, it says that, however, a second crash, that there was a second crash of a craft in 1950 in the El Indio Guerrero area of Texas. Fifth, go ahead, I'm sorry. I was going to say, very good, you were able to say that this time. I, I said it this time. <laughs> yes, folks, the first three times we recorded this, I couldn't say those words. El Indio it, it, Guerrero. Yeah, That's don't helpful. ask me to say it again. It was in Texas. Um, the document also discusses the following, that gaining additional information regarding the performance characteristics and the purpose of these craft and other crafts that were seen in our skies at that time led to the development of Project Sign, then Project Grudge, and then something that most of us have heard of, Project Blue Book, with two MJ-12, Majestic 12 members, who served as liaisons with the Intelligence Division of the Air Material Command. The intention, finally, in this document, the intentions 
of the visitors remain unknown. Now remember, folks, this particular document is a briefing document that was prepared for then-President-elect Eisenhower. The fourth document is the Truman to Forrestal Memo. This document's security classification is top secret, secret eyes only, and was also acquired by Jamie Chandray on the same roll of film that was sent to his house in December of 1984. The memo is dated September 24, 1947. It's from President Harry Truman, and it's to the Secretary of Defense, James Forrestal, and its purpose is, tell, is to tell him to proceed with due speed and caution as per their agreement, and that the matter would be referred to as Operation Majestic 12. Further considerations would rest then with the President, the Secretary, uh, excuse me, with the President, Secretary Forrestal, Dr. Vannevar Bush, and the Director of the Central Intelligence, Roscoe Hillencotter. Yes, Hillencotter. Yeah. Hillencotter, yeah. And, you know, finally, the, there's one fifth document that we want to bring up, and this is something, uh, of all the documents, it's one of the ones that's just kind of odd, and we'll talk about that later. And that is, number five, the Cutler-Twining Memo. The Cutler-Twining Memo is classified top secret, majestic, and eyes only. And it was acquired again by Jamie Chandray. But this time, William Moore was also involved, and it was acquired by the two of them at the National Archives in College Park, Maryland, in December of 1984. The memo is from Robert Cutler, who was special assistant to President General Nathan Twine. Excuse me. He was the special assistant to the president to General Nathan Twining and is dated July 14, 1952. It concerns the National Security Council, Majestic 12, of which the president decided the next MJ-12 briefing would take place during the already scheduled White House meeting of July 16th, rather than a previously intended date. So there you have it, a rundown of the five most discussed Majestic documents. There are other juicy documents, such as the Special Operations Manual, Extraterrestrial Entities and Technology Recovery and Disposal that was sent to UFO researcher Don Berliner, but you can take a look at that one on your own. That is another document that is also available at MajesticDocuments.com. And that one really does deserve uh, a description of its own, even though I, I didn't write that out. But of these five documents, to me, the juiciest is the Eisenhower briefing document. If I really thought all of this stuff were real, and I guess I'm giving away some of my conclusions at the moment, but uh, that's the one, boy, I would just, I would love to have been there when that was written, if it were actually true, and all of that, because it's just the juiciest, right? Yeah. I mean, you, you get validation of the Kenneth Arnold sighting of June 24, 1947, which is true. Okay. Right. That's true. Yeah, he did. That, but, is, that is a bit of history. Yeah. And but then you get into the July seventh, nineteen forty seven crash of a uh, an extraterrestrial spaceship, and right? EBEs and all of that, and you get into Roswell, and right, and we that's just so that, much fun, you know. Right, we call that the Roswell incident. Many yeah. books, many television shows. Yeah, but by far, I think that is the most interesting. Uh, I would also say that the Cutler Twining memo is very interesting as well. Mm-hmm. Right. 
Yeah, I think too. Going back to when what you're talking about with the Eisenhower briefing document, uh, what many of us don't know is, and really you have to be kind of up on UFO lore, so to speak. And what many of us don't know is that beyond the Roswell incident, there was another crash, uh, allegedly another crash that took place in 1950 in Texas. So, and, and of course that document refers to that. There is less known of that crash than there is of the Roswell crash, but then how much of it is all fact and how much of it is fiction in, in any case regarding either one is kind of up for grabs at this point. Yeah, it's very debated. Yep. Fascinating though. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Well, Mike and I are going to talk a little bit about authorship attribution. Mike, you want to explain what that is and then kind of um, get us started with that? Yes. When it comes to authorship attribution and the majestic documents, authorship attribution in this case, actually, generally speaking, deals with the identification of the author of a given text. So the main task here is to determine the writing characteristics of an author from the characteristics of documents also written by that author. So what we know the author has written had to be has to be compared to what we suspect the author may have written. So for this kind of analysis of the majestic documents, we're going to turn to a research paper titled The Majestic Documents, a Forensic Linguistics Report by Michael S. Heiser, Ph.D., from June of 2007. Now, Dr. Heiser is an ancient Near Eastern uh, ancient Near Eastern Semitic language specialist with an interest in UFOs. So he decided to bring the study of the majestic documents research to a level of scrutiny like never before. One would naturally think, well, what does an ancient Near Eastern language specialist want to have to do with UFOs and majestic documents? Well, he decided to run some of these documents through a rigorous test uh, to determine whether or not uh, the authorship whose name is on some of these documents uh, is, is actually true. So he wanted to decide, is it true or not? So previous research on the majestic documents included thorough forensic authentication with respect to non-linguistic issues and methods by Robert Wood, Ryan Wood, and Stanton Friedman that had been done up to the time of 2007. So this includes looking at things like signatures, color markings, typewriter fonts, etc. Through this research, Stanton Friedman had actually detected fakes in the Majestic documents, which were photocopies, photocopies of original documents with content that had been altered towards the belief in the existence of the Majestic 12 group. While the Woods and Friedman claim to have affirmed linguistic testing of the documents, Heiser says there's actually no evidence to support this testing. So this is where Heiser kicks up the research level. He decided uh, to pay Dr. Carol Chosky, a forensic linguist, to determine whether the majestic documents that carry a signature were indeed written by the people to whom authorship is attributed. So the study employed state-of-the-art computational computer linguistic methods of authorship attribution. 
The study could not, however, authenticate the historical contents of the documents. So, in other words, the study could not determine, like, for example, whether a real flying disc crashed outside of Roswell, New Mexico in 1947. Right. Yeah, it, was, it would really all it would decide is help you did, did so-and-so actually write that document that said that. Is That's that right. Correct? Okay. Yeah. Did did Harry Truman really write the memo that has his name on it? That's really yeah. what it would come down to. Right. So you can see the you can see these documents that Dr. Heiser had tested. And once again, you can find them at majesticdocuments.com. Now, concerning the selection of the documents for testing, Dr. Heiser used the following criteria. And this is important. Each document had to be attributed to an author. That's number one. Number two, each had to be more than a couple of sentences long. Number three, there had to be a specific reference to the existence of EBEs, extraterrestrial biological entities, or some type of salvaged wreckage. This is the really juicy stuff. This is what we want to find out. Did the author really write such a thing? Number four, there had to be a sub amount of prose. You have to have enough content to really test it. Enough words. And, yeah. Got to have enough words. And number five, finally, uh, secondhand documents were not used, such as those attributed to people not known. In other words, what Dr. Heiser did was he picked 17 documents from nine different authors that were well-known and especially well-known in the study of unidentified flying objects. So, of the, second, of the 17 documents from nine different authors, here's who was selected. Franklin D. Roosevelt, Harry S. Truman, Dwight D. Eisenhower, John F. Kennedy, all four whom were presidents. Number five, U.S. Secretary of State George C. Marshall, the third director of the CIA, Roscoe Hillencotter, General Nathan Twining, the head of the U.S. Office of Scientific Research and Development, Vannevar Bush, and the fifth director of the CIA, Alan Dulles. Some of the documents submitted had already proven to be forgeries by Stanton Friedman. Stan Friedman, who is a big proponent or was a big proponent, of the Majestic 12 documents. He's deceased now. He did prove that some of them were forgeries. So Dr. Heiser wanted to see if Dr. Chosky would come to the same conclusion conclusion regarding those documents as yeah. well. In other words, so, if Freeman thought these documents were fake, he wanted to see if Chosky would determine that those same documents were fake. Exactly. He basically tested her. Now, the computational testing methods are rather technical and don't make for good podcast content. So I really do recommend, we both do, that you go read this paper. And once again, the paper is titled, da, 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 The Majestic Documents, A Forensic Linguistics Report. All right. So here are the testing results. We're going to get right to the results. Can you believe this? Only one document of the 17 majestic documents tested by Dr. Chosky showed a strong likelihood of being authored by the person whose name appears on the document. And that document, drumroll please, 
was a letter sent by General Nathan Twining to General George Shulgin. And that was the only one. That was the only one. This is really valuable work. So of these, of these 17 documents, and once again, you can read in more detail about, uh, about those documents and get a good description of them. What does Dr. Heiser say we can learn from the test results? Now, this is important. Well, Dr. Chosky validated Stanton Friedman's work in determining that several were already forgeries. Although Stan Freeman was a big proponent of these documents, I think he really did strive to be intellectually honest, even though he was very, very committed to uh, the majestic documents and their place in the study of UFOs and its history. So it did validate Stan Freeman. But number two, none of the documents bearing the name of authors, which refer to the recovery of alien bodies or contact with extraterrestrials, Pass the computational linguistic testing. So no crash ships. But that's, I hate to say, but it's kind of a bummer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You'd like that, to at least. That's the really juicy stuff, you know? Yeah, you want to at least find Charlie Brown's kite buried in the sand or something. You, know, you want something <laughs> to be right. there. You know? But even, yeah. even that wasn't there. Yeah. So, but he did his good work. Uh, Heiser did good work and Chosky did good work. And we found out, uh, not so much. No crash ships. Well, this leaves us with a great shadow of doubt over the validity of the majestic documents as a whole. Yeah, but that's the way it is, you know. Right. But interestingly enough, Dr. Heiser paid for the study with his own money. I want to say it cost him about $1,000 because I remember when this report came out and he either stated on the air how much it cost him or he told me through an email correspondence. I can't remember. But... Even though he paid with this for with his own money, uh, evidently over the last 13 years, he has been unable to raise sufficient funds to continue testing for more majestic documents. Now, this this I find interesting because this means either serious researchers are persuaded the majestic documents don't need to be tested because they're not really valid. They're not really, they can't really, really be attributed to the authors whose names are on them or people don't want to know. <laughs> right. right. The, the big proponents of the majestic documents don't really want to know anymore. So uh, they're not going to contribute, which I think is a shame. I think if, you know, like we said, there are thousands of majestic documents and we know a lot of them are bogus. So it probably does no good to test the ones that we just know are bogus. But if there are more of the majestic documents that are thought to be authentic, I would think researchers like the Woods and the late Stanton Friedman and others would want to, through a Kickstarter campaign or something, put some money in a pot and raise it up and get more tested. But uh, unfortunately, this has never happened. And it could be that some of that is because the interest interest grows and then goes away in this yeah. particular topic. Most, I you know, I can honestly say that in my circle of friends and family members, you and I are the only ones <laughs> that even know about the Majestic 12 documents. 
But or, probably, or would put money in a pot to test more of them. That's right. That's right. <laughs> test to do that again. Uh, please give them some money. So we we would do that maybe. But you know, if you took our whole family uh, and extended family, we're probably the only two that maybe there's a couple more of us. But there's probably only a few of us that know about these legendary documents, the Majestic Twelve documents. But most everybody in our family would have heard of Roswell. Which is right. really what started a lot of this. The uh, the uncovered story uh, released regarding a crash, you know, in 1947. Yeah. I was telling a guy I work with um, that we were podcasting over the Majestic Documents. And he's pretty familiar with UFO lore and, and the study and, and so forth. And even he wasn't quite sure what I was talking about at first. So I think it's a safe bet that most of our friends don't know mm-hmm. <laughs> what the Majestic 12 documents are and why we would even want to talk about them. Right. But maybe after this podcast, if they're brave enough to listen, yeah, they'll learn a little bit more. They'll learn, they'll learn a little more. So keep, <laughs> keep in mind, folks, that you know, since the beginning of the UFO age, let's just call it that, in 1947 with the Kenneth Arnold sighting. And then the many UFO sightings in the 50s, especially in the 50s, that from that time forward, there was a big interest in the public. I mean, people asking, what are these things zipping around in the sky at night? And there were certain military circles, Air Force, Army, uh, who were also interested, some government circles who were interested in terms of intelligence, but, you know, knowing that and then, and then seeing it kind of jump into the general population's knowledge and, and you know, uh, consciousness because of the whole story of Roswell, people like the amazing fiction stories about that event. But there's been very little official documentation that's reliable regarding that event and, and a lot of other stories, you know, related to UFOs. So when somebody comes out and says, hey, I've got some government documents that reveal the existence of an unknown organization whose purpose was to study these craft and then to find the ones that have crashed and pick them up and bring them home, you know. That's and, right, yeah. You know, along with uh, the pilots, uh, dead or alive, that kind of thing. When that kind of documentation is given to UFO researchers that just fuels the fire, but it yeah. fuels it on a different level because those are the people who have been looking at it seriously, looking at the issue of UFOs seriously, whereas the general population just watches the science fiction programs. Yeah, or documentaries on cable TV. Exactly. <laughs> and and let's remind everyone that none of these documents were acquired through the Freedom of Information Act. Yeah, none of these. Ones. None of them. <laughs> okay. None of them. In fact, the only one that uh, I would say has any legitimacy to them is the Cutler 20 memo because it was supposed to have been found at the National Archives in College Park, Maryland by Jamie Chandoray and, and William Moore in December of 1984. And one of the arguments I have heard against the legitimacy of this document is, hey, you know, uh, people go to bring photocopies of documents out. They don't go to put them in. 
but it wouldn't be impossible <laughs> to put something in and then say you found it, right? You know? Yeah. Who puts so, things into the archives in the first place? The government. Yeah. Know. So. Yeah. Uh, and that, and folks, let me contribute. Maybe I can contribute something here to this whole authorship and attribution discussion here. That's why Mike and I, as we look at these documents, as we read up a little bit on how others have looked at those documents, how others have studied those, my point of contention with the whole thing has been the introduction of those documents to begin with. Because anyone who, who looks at how Jamie Chandray acquired a film, a roll of film that had the original documents, how he and William Moore and Stanton Friedman researched what was developed off of that film to come up with this list or to come up which revealed these documents and then to come up with this whole idea that there was an organization out there. There were people involved in the early years of the document discovery that appeared to be sort of feeding that information. Richard yes. Doty, whom we've talked about, yeah. uh, who was with the Air Force Office of Special Investigations, and who came out later on and said, hey, I was a disinformation officer. My job was to feed stories that yeah. were not true, information that was not true. So when you bring that into the argument, it's so hard to say from our perspective, I think, that any of these documents are exactly what they claim to be. As Chosky and uh, Chosky's research and Heiser's report revealed, one document, only one, was exactly what it claimed to be. And that was simply uh, a document that was, uh, you know, written from one person to another. And within the context of all this, really, although that person may have written it, it's hard to say that it really dealt with, you know, UFOs or the majestic operation, things like that. So on a legitimate level. So only one of those documents, it, it appears, right. of the original documents, it appears was actually written by that person. Everything else was probably constructed fiction or copies of existing documents merged with content from other documents to create a kind of artificial story so yeah so we have issues with these yeah when i think about all of these documents and i have certainly not read them all my ultimate conclusion is is that they're not genuine they make for great storytelling but richard Doty is entirely too shady of a character to be trusted and since william moore came out and said he knowingly passed off false information to Fellow UFO researchers, it really makes me think that Doty through Moore, or maybe Doty and Moore, were stringing uh, Stanton Friedman and Jamie Chandray along. And as a result of that, many uh, UFO researchers were deceived uh, as, as, uh, as a result of that. Um, my ultimate conclusion, though, is that for Christians— we really do need to respect the fact that and understand that truth really matters in the study of history. If truth doesn't really exist and human beings can't authentically record history accurately, uh, then the study of history is, uh, is not worth our time 
all we're doing is if if all we're doing at the end is studying uh the beliefs of the winners or you know the victors of history uh and we can't trust them at any level then we're in big trouble we're we're in big trouble but we can we can record his history accurately and truth matters in the study of history and where we get our information matters as well if these documents had come uh, through the freedom of information act um and then they were tested to be <laughs> inauthentic then we've got a really big problem we've got an even bigger problem uh so i would be interested in for those of you that are familiar with the blackvault.com uh, the Black Vault is a wonderful uh, resource website containing hundreds of thousands or even millions of documents acquired through the Freedom of Information Act. And it's um, it's hosted by a gentleman by the name of John Greenwald Jr. I would love to take um, documents from his website that have come through the Freedom of Information Act and pertaining to particular subjects that we think we really want to test um, the authorship attribution of these documents pertaining to a particular subject, whether it's UFOs or MK Ultra Mind Control, and have Dr. Chosky perform a test on those documents. Because that might shed light even on the authenticity of documents pertaining to those subjects and those authors that come through the Freedom of Information Act. We would actually be be running a test on genuine government documents, which mm -hmm. to me would be fascinating. And I hope, you know, that they would all come out to be authentic because I would hate to think that we're being deceived even at that level. Um, but food for thought. Right, right. And I, I would add this, that folks, for the, those of us who are Christians and who are believers, there's something very distinctly different about how, let's say, a Christian who reads the Bible and believes that the Bible, as we have it, is the inspired Word of God. And those are, those are other discussions. A lot of people don't, many people, including uh, sometimes some Christians, don't necessarily accept that all of the bits of scripture that are contained in the Bible are inspired or are the word of God, especially maybe ones that we don't necessarily uh, like, you know, from a, from the historical perspective or, or whatever. But if, uh, if a scripture writer says, uh, all scripture is inspired by God and uses the word that implies that this is literally breathed out by God, communicated to individuals and and then to us as it's written down. If it is the word of God and God says he cannot lie and he cannot sin, then there's an authoritative source there behind that. We can choose to believe that. We can choose to disbelieve that. Interesting. I've always thought this was an amazing thing that doesn't matter whether we believe it or not. It's either true or it's not. And it might be true and I might not believe it. Uh, it might be true and I might believe it, you know. Right. Uh, uh, it, it is a it's a critical discussion to 
to kind of keep that in the back of your mind because most of us we're inclined to say well i can't know really if this is true or not so i'm just not going to think about it and we treat a lot of things in life that way yeah we do. Com- we do we do so when it comes to history most you know maybe most of us don't think much about history and whether or not it's portrayed or recorded accurately but it's important it's important to know that many people want to communicate accurately and have written down as best they can facts and stories regarding p- uh, bits of history from the past it's interesting to know that it's interesting to know that some people are not interested in portraying accurately right. and yeah. And we cannot, we can't, we can do this. We can just say, well, I don't care and and throw it all out there. I I can't know. We can do that. But that may not be the best thing for us to just simply not give consideration to a story or a fact or a bit of truth, whether it's scriptural or historical or or whatever. So from our perspective, uh, folks, there is God-inspired, God-breathed truth. And Mike and I both tuck that in the back of our minds when we think about these subjects. And we believe that we can at least know that God is in control of all of this, that God is not unaware of things, and uh, that he is a, 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 you know, working in that or a part of that. So, Yeah, very good. Well said. Well, folks... That may be it for the majestic documents. I think that's pretty much all I got to say about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, unfor- the unfortunate truth is, you could go- we could both go on for a long time about this, but it wouldn't add anything to the discussion, really. <laughs> now, I think if uh, uh, people really want to get some more mileage out of the subject, uh, they can go read um, Dr. Heiser's paper. And they can also go to MajesticDocuments.com and find a couple of papers written by Dr. Robert Wood, which we did not discuss, um, but are still a part of the greater discussion and worth reading. So, hey, that's all for the Majestic Documents. Right. And, And let's just say this, that going into the next couple of episodes, Mike and I intend to tell our own stories here the things that we have seen or noticed or experienced that got us kind of interested in this subject, why our uh, father, uh, our dad, was also kind of following some of this, some of this historically. And, uh, I mean, let's face it, folks. Most of us could probably go out and find somebody in family or friends who would say, yeah, I really saw something kind of unusual in the sky or lurking in the woods or you know you you can find uh, stories like that and uh it's easy to dismiss to say well yeah you just misidentified something yeah but within the con or to say that we didn't or to say you know you didn't see that at all actually folks most people again are not interested in knowingly constructing a, a, a bit of falsehood. Most people, I think, really do do their best to relay a story and to tell what they saw, when they saw it, what happened, or what happened to them. 
So we're going to talk about what we saw. Yeah. Yeah. I think the next podcast will deal with personal UFO experiences and our inherited interest in the subject. Yeah. Yeah. And as Jay said, most people aren't uh, out there to deceive people. But I have noticed that most people don't talk about these sorts of subjects around just anybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah. People really don't do that. So we're going to do that. Right. And maybe let's let's do this. If you're listening and you have a a UFO story to tell, uh, we'll put a little email address out there where you can reach out and get in touch with us. Maybe that would be something to kind of explore as well. Sure. Sounds good. Well, all right, everyone. That's it for this episode of the Posterity Podcast. Have a good week, everybody. Listen to this spooky music as we close. <laughs> actually, this is Hamana Hamana by our, by our brother. Okay, listen to hey. this funny music. Yes. Yeah. This is actually very funny. So here you go. Ray Carmen, yeah. taking us out. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Yeah.